Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with a special edition of Capital Close-Up and Beyond Politics. I'm here with my co-host, Matt Robeson, on WKXL AM and FM and podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We're brought to you by the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire, the two great venues at ccanh.com. Well, on everybody's mind today is war in Europe. Uh, and we are joined by a special guest to help us make some sense of what's going on. Sean Carberry is a foreign affairs expert, consultant, and an award-winning journalist and media producer with unique experience reporting on conflict. He served as NPR's international correspondent based in Kabul, Afghanistan, after reporting for NPR for more than two dozen war-torn Middle Eastern and African countries. Most recently, he worked for the U.S. Department of Defense as the lead on Department of Defense Inspector General reports on Afghanistan. Now, in a past life, Carberry was a gold record recording engineer, which inspired me to hire him as my campaign manager for my first campaign for Congress in 2004. He has a master's degree from the Harvard Kennedy School, and he's a graduate of the Skip Barber School of Auto Racing, which comes in handy when you're reporting from a war zone and being chased by the bad guys. So, Sean, welcome uh, back to our show. Thanks, Paul. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, let's get right down to it. Putin and Ukraine. Many observers, and in fact, Ukrainian President Zelensky himself, discounted warnings of an invasion. They were all wrong. And now we're plunged into the most significant global war crisis since World War II. How did we get here? Well, first, I, I just want to note that as, as you were uh, doing the introduction there, when you mentioned uh, war in Europe, um, just just hearing that out loud is, uh, is still just shocking, frankly, um, to, to realize that we are in a situation of uh, Russian invasion in Europe. Um, in terms of the, you know, the how we got here, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly state a, a few weeks ago, uh, I, I was on, um, you know, another program discussing this topic. And, you know, at that time, we were talking about possible off ramps, uh, as as Putin was was mounting his troops was making his demands. Uh, was there a way to avoid this? Was there a way to uh, placate Putin? enough that he could go back to his people and essentially declare that he had received uh, sufficient concessions from the United States and Europe to avoid the invasion. And there was a feeling that there was a narrow range of possibility there at, at that time that uh, everyone could agree to uh, start a new round of negotiations over European security agreements and basing of NATO troops and weapons and things like that, uh, that Putin could agree to and sit down and and essentially feel that uh, he was getting what he wanted uh, and that would avoid the, the invasion. You know, I, I think now looking at what's played out over the last week, it, it seems like this was going to happen regardless. Um, you know, he, there was a brief moment right before the invasion when he was uh, signaling that uh, <clears throat> negotiations were a possibility. But at this point, it, it just seems that 
the things that he wants, uh, his view of Russia and the world today, of, of great power dynamics, um, that, that he needed to do this and that there really wasn't much of anything that was feasible. I mean, obviously, look, the United States was not going to put troops in Ukraine. Ukraine's not a NATO country. NATO was not going to send troops in uh, to try to ward off an invasion. Uh, the threat of sanctions, uh, even though the sanctions are, are increasing and becoming significant to the point now that they are going to take a severe bite out of uh, Russia's economy, the threat of that wasn't uh, enough up front. Um, so this is... Um, uh, you know, really, it's it's a strange place born of Putin's worldview, his view of Russia's place in the world, his view of power and strength and, you know, essentially a, a might makes right uh, view and his his need to be a, a figure in Russian history who, you know, sort of puts the band back together, so to speak, you know, you know, reunites uh, the Soviet Union and and recaptures the sphere of influence uh, that it had in its uh, it, its heyday. So um, you know this, this, it's it's a hard thing to deal with when you have someone who's really not acting rationally at this point and acting within um, with, within the constraints of 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 both uh, you know his power and 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 standing in the world. So. Um, you know, that's why looking at how how does this resolve, which obviously I think we'll we'll get into, is is an even tougher question. But the you know the how did we get here really does come down to the fact that um, Putin has been moving in this direction for a long time and clearly assessed that the costs of taking this action were lower than uh, you know the, the the gains in his mind of of doing it. And, uh, you know, that that's been the, the challenge of, of trying to make him see a different equation. Let me um, just follow up for a moment, because I want to I want to go back a little bit in time um, to put what you've said in in some context. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, let's say 20 years that we were looking at Russia as a new kind of partner, as a potential um, ally as as a country that could actually join NATO that that there were economic reforms uh, that that politically things had changed. Then in two thousand eight we saw we saw the the conflict in Georgia uh, with the invasion of Georgia. We had. Um, uh, we had we had Russia going into Syria. We had Russia's um, takeover of the Crimea. Shouldn't that have have given everybody the kind of signal and pause that what we had hoped um, at the beginning of the century in terms of where Russia was going was simply not to be? Wasn't wasn't that enough for people to understand what you just outlined about Putin and his intentions? Yeah, look, the, the writing's been on the wall for for a long time. And, you know, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, when the uh, George W. Bush administration came into power, uh, they started trying to reach out to, to Russia and build a, a new relationship, as, as you mentioned. 
And the thought was then at that point of trying to pull Russia toward the West and you know, really didn't get very far. I mean, there, there were areas and moments of cooperation. There were, you know, discussions about, uh, you know, weapons and things like that. Uh, some initial hints of, of cooperation. Um, but, you know, once it really, to me, it was probably 2000, I don't know, five, six, seven range um, especially when oil prices were tilting in, in Russia's favor and Putin was starting to accumulate wealth. And that was giving him the ability to start looking at, you know, reasserting Russia in the world. And, you know, in 2007, in particular, I, I traveled to Serbia, Kosovo and Russia to report on at that point the chilling relations between the United States and Russia. So again, around 2007, uh, this, you know, the hope of pulling Russia westward uh, was, was really fading. And, uh, you know, Russia was supporting Serbia in opposing independence for Kosovo. The United States was supporting Kosovo. And uh, people I spoke to at that time, both in, in Serbia and uh, in, in Russia, uh, we're really talking then about the the need for Russia to to re- reassert itself in the world, and that Putin's goal at that point was to bring Russia back to a, a place of relevance. And it was fascinating to me. I, you know, I remember talking to some some college kids in in Moscow in 2007, and they were talking about how Russia had been humiliated after the Cold War. Um, that you know the West started gobbling up the the former Soviet countries in Europe and pulling them into NATO, and uh, you know Russia was was weak. It was not. Uh, it was no longer the the pole um, that it was in the bipolar world um, or multi you know the two pole world of the Cold War, and uh, so so there was a sense then that. Um, you know, people were behind Putin's efforts to bring Russia back, to make it uh, a power again, to to have influence in the world. And there was a, a feeling then that uh, Putin wanted to make sure that no big decisions could happen in the world without Russia's say so. And so Kosovo was was an early example of that, where Russia was was opposing independence and arguing that um, unless Serbia agreed that there shouldn't be independence for for Kosovo. Uh, then after that, as you you know you mentioned, that the next bit was the uh, the war in Georgia in, in two thousand eight, and then you know you've had this sort of nibbling that's that's gone on. You know, it, it was never at, at what we're seeing now a full blown invasion of of a country. You know, he's grabbing little bits of territory here and there that he argued were historically you know parts of Russia or Russia aligned. And, you know, those, those incursions were never enough to trigger a full response to it. And, and part of the reason is, I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, Russia's a nuclear power. So that gives it a, a certain amount of latitude. I mean, you know, when, when you're strong at, at, a, at a level like that, you know, you can kind of get away with a lot of stuff underneath before it escalates to a level where someone's going to say, hey, we have to draw a line here. 
Um, you know, especially because as we've seen over the years, you know, Russia does not play by the, the normal rules of, of international law and, and, you know, politics and diplomacy and uses asymmetrical tactics. I mean, you know, look at its information operations, its cyber operations. And so I think that, you know, there's always been a, a certain fear of pushing back too hard to the point that Russia says, well, you know, now we're really going to unleash our hackers or, uh, you know, take other, other action. And so um, I, I just think the United States and the West has really struggled to figure out a way to, to respond to these uh, increasing, as I say, sort of these, these nibbles or testing of the water over the years that Russia has done and largely gotten away with to the point that, you know, Putin felt like he could pull this off. Um, to what degree, yeah. let me ask you about Putin yeah. and, and his feelings about this. To what degree can we understand all of Russia's behavior, not just in the current Ukraine crisis, but in, during this period that you've just been, been walking us through? How, how much is this all really about Putin? Because there's obviously a long, rich, sordid history of trying to understand what's going on in the internal power dynamics in Russia. There, there's a whole school of Kremlinology, and there's a whole history of analysis going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, where famously, there were different factions going on inside the Kremlin. Nikita Khrushchev sent two letters back to back. One seemed to be very bellicose. One seemed to be very conciliatory. And it the U.S. intelligence didn't know what to make of it. They thought that he might have been uh, toppled in a coup. There was that much there was that much positioning going on underneath him. So what do we know about the internal political dynamics? To what extent is Putin responding to different factions and different political pressures domestically? And, and is this really all about him or are there other things going on under the surface? Yeah, I, and this has certainly been discussed uh, a lot in, in recent weeks. And, uh, you know, it sort of goes to, to, you know, Paul's question as well about, you know, how, how do we get here? And I think, you know, the consensus is, is pretty squarely on the fact that, you know, Putin is Russia at, at this point. Uh, you know, you look at over the years, the, you know, the dissidents, the critics that have, um, you know, mysteriously come into contact with uh, toxic substances and, uh, and, you know, disappeared. Um, he has consolidated power to uh, a tremendous extent. He has built up uh, you know, Russian wealth and its currency reserves. Um, they're really, you know, certainly from the outside, you know, and again, because of, of the way he's handled critics, you don't hear dissent. You know, there's nothing like in the United States where you, you know, whatever the opposition party is that's out of power in the United States is, is loud and critical and, you know, argues against just about everything that the, you know, the party in power does. None of that happens in in Russia. His his consolidation of power is uh, is really pretty pretty thorough. Um, you know, the parliament is is a rubber stamp. The oligarchs have benefited um, you know mightily from from his rule. Uh, so that, you know, there really doesn't seem to be any great challenge to to his 
decision making at this point. The other concern, and there's been a lot of talk about the fact that over the last couple of years, he's been increasingly isolated. And so there are a lot of questions now about whether there are any voices uh, around him that are providing him any any you know, useful counsel at this point. Whether anyone's saying, "Hey, you know what? You might be overplaying your hand at this point." Uh, you know, once once you unleash this in Ukraine, you can't put it back in the bottle, and uh, you know this this could go badly for for the country. So. You know, there, there's there's a sense now that that he hasn't really been surrounded by close confidants or advisors, and uh, that's that's what's concerning to a lot of you know sort of Putin experts is the fact that he's he's really kind of been unleashed uh, at at this point and able to to act on on his views and and his his uh, you know if you call it instinct, but um, you know this this is part of what what's concerning and and so far uh you know the russian people are are you know by all accounts standing behind him and and this decision and and part of that is is a function of you know the information operations that putin conducts domestically as well as internationally and you know certainly there's been a lot of messaging to the russian people He's built up this narrative about Ukraine not being a real country that it's you know it's it's always been a, a part of Russia, uh, and that the West has been arming it against Russia. It's an existential threat, um, you know. So so there's been heavy messaging to to the people of Russia, and uh, you know people seem to be bought in enough. I mean, obviously there have been some protests in in Russia, uh, which says a lot that people have been willing to take to the streets in, in opposition to Putin, because again, you know, that, that generally doesn't end well. Um, but, but right now, it, you know, again, to, to circle back to the question, you know, I really think that uh, this is, you know, Putin is Russia at, at this point. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really see any forces within right now uh, challenging that. I mean, if this thing starts playing out and, and turning into another Soviet occupation of Afghanistan situation, um, you know, I think you'll, you'll start to see some fractures. Uh, but, you know, for now, um, you know, this is, this is his show. Uh, Ukraine and Russia are headed for, for talks of some sort. And those talks are going to be probably centered around what Russia's concerns are and what Putin wants. Um, is it rational? Maybe. Is it, is it pathological? Maybe. But from his standpoint, Sean, what are his security concerns? And uh, can they be answered? Can they be addressed? When you frame it specifically with security concerns, you know, I would say from, from the outside, no, there are no legitimate security concerns that there are threats against Russia, right? There's, there's no country, there's no military that is, has threatened, is threatening, will threaten Russia. Now, from his standpoint, however, um, obviously he has viewed the, the expansion of NATO as a, a threat to, to Russia. Now again, is it a true security threat? No, not really. It's 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 much more of a you know an influence threat. You know, as, as we were discussing earlier about his view of of Russia in the world, he was 
he was a Cold War KGB operative. His worldview is still really framed around the notion of Soviet power politics and sphere of influence. So the, you know, the constant expansion of NATO, of the EU over the years has pulled countries that were in the Soviet orbits to the West. That has certainly been something that has given him concern. Uh, it's something that he has over the years voiced. I mean, you know, there's been no secret about his opposition to former uh, Soviet or, or Iron Curtain nations joining NATO, joining the EU. And the eastward movement of Europe and, and NATO has been viewed by Putin as, as, a, as a threat. So certainly that, that has been an animating factor in, in Putin's actions and foreign policy over the years of trying to, to blunt the, you know, the Eastern movement of, of, you know, the Western security apparatus. Again, we, you know, we have to rem remember NATO is a defensive alliance and it was never designed to be an offensive force. It was never built to invade, to, to capture territory. It was about defending Europe uh, you know, coming out of you know, World War II and years of, of conflict in Europe. So it's a, it's a defensive alliance that has increased as, as countries over the years have viewed it in their interest to join NATO, join the EU. And, you know, Putin, one of his key demands has been to roll back NATO to essentially where it was in, in 1997. And, you know, he's he has voiced that that was one of his demands that he issued to the United States uh, several weeks ago, uh, a month or so ago at this point, as he was ramping up towards this this invasion. So his his goal has been to shrink NATO, put it back in in a smaller box and pull the countries of, of Eastern Europe, former you know, Soviet satellite states back into to Russia's orbit. And, you know, he's been largely successful doing that in the, the Central Asian states. You know, a lot of the stands over the years, he's been able to, through, you know, both carrots and sticks, economic coercion, as well as, as you know, use of, of force and, and punishments against some of these countries, pull them back into a sort of pro-Russia alignment. Um, but but the fact is that, you know, the European nations, you know, especially, you know, the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, they have no interest whatsoever in in rejoining the Russia club. Uh, you know, they are firmly cemented in in the West. And you know, then you've had these swing states. And obviously, it's been Georgia and Ukraine have been the two that have been talked about for years. And in 2008, you know, there were these discussions in, in the U.S. talked about. Um, you know, Ukraine and Georgia becoming members of, of NATO down the road. And and that's that seems to be one of the grievances that, it, you know, has really set Putin off is that that moment and, that I'm, I'm just yeah. going to interrupt to point out that as we are speaking, um, the news from uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky was to ask the European Union for a special procedure to allow Ukraine 
to join the <laughs> EU while this invasion is active and in the face of Russia putting its nuclear forces on alert and in the face of statements from the Russian foreign ministry um, basically threatening uh, Sweden and Finland if they were to uh, take steps to join NATO. It's, it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary moment in terms of the dynamic that you're talking about in terms of what's in Putin's mind about his uh, concerns. Yeah, and and you know, so so this this is really sort of at at the center of it. Um, for every every country that joins NATO or the EU, that's taking you know a piece of this sort of zero sum uh, you know pie that uh, that means you know Russia's influence is is diminished. Um, and you know, and that's the question. I mean, you know, this is a weird sort of self fulfilling prophecy. And and one of the things again, I was saying a few weeks ago that that argued that Putin might not invade was the fact that the moment he invaded, everything he was seeking and demanding was, would become impossible. And actually the situation would get worse for him. By invading, it was only gonna strengthen NATO. It was gonna bring more resources into NATO. It was gonna reinvigorate NATO because again, you know, a lot of people said you know, NATO had become somewhat irrelevant because there there really weren't threats to to Europe. Um, it, you know, NATO was was sort of triggered, with Article Five triggered with Afghanistan in two thousand one, um, but really, you know, the, NATO was kind of languishing in 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 Europe in some ways, and people were wondering, well, you know, what's the point of it? Well, guess what? Now everyone is looking at at it saying. We need a more robust NATO. We need countries to invest more. I mean, what Putin has done, he's, he's gotten Germany now to pledge to increase its contributions to NATO. It's going to send weapons to Ukraine. Uh, you know, he pulled NATO sort of off, the, or sorry, pulled Germany off, you know, the sidelines to a degree and gotten Germany more involved in defense of, of Europe. So, uh it's it's just you know sort of bizarre that you know what he wanted is now far less possible um, by virtue of of invading Ukraine. I mean the the only thing he can conceivably accomplish is you know creating a a, a demilitarized client state in Ukraine to create a buffer uh, you know against the the expansion of the West. But then you know what's next? Is he going to Tried the same thing in in Georgia or or other countries. I mean, uh, you know, this this is why it, it's just hard to to figure out how this plays out. Uh, simply because of the fact that what Putin is doing does not rationally achieve his his stated objectives of of you know pushing back NATO, getting. NATO, you know, U.S. troops and weapons out of Europe, some of these other demands that he had made, they're just absolutely not, I mean, they weren't going to happen then. I mean, let's face it, U.S. was not going to pull out of NATO. NATO was not going to kick countries out that had joined in, in the last 20 years. Um, but, but now, you know, Putin is not going to get what he wanted out of this. So, uh, you know, what does that do to his calculations and, and, you know, the extent to which he's going to, you know, going to double down to try to get something out of this. So, so far, 
our discussion has been at a very high level. The strategy, the overall alignment of countries and blocks of countries. But I'd like to take it down to the ground level for a second. There was a really extraordinary piece of audio that came out this morning from the Daily, the New York Times podcast, of their reporter uh, literally on the ground uh, there in Kyiv and interviewing people there who are under war conditions right now. You have the experience of being a reporter in a war zone, which is not an experience that, that most of us have had. And you've obviously traveled extensively in this region of the world, not to mention your Kabul experience for NPR. Could you just walk us through what is that like? What are your colleagues who are currently war zone reporters going through? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to capture? How are they trying to position themselves so as to capture the story, but not imperil their own lives? Just take us inside that for a minute, if you would. Yeah, and you know it's 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 interesting that 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 you ask that because one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm actually writing a a memoir of of my time and experiences doing that work, and so just you know even yesterday I was I was working on on sections where I'm writing about my process of of teasing out exactly what you're talking about that that trying to balance the the importance of capturing the story. And getting as as close to all the pieces of of the action, whether it's the actual combat, whether it's the you know the movement of of refugees, um, but but trying to, to capture all of that and and do it uh, in a way that's you know safe for for yourself and and for the the others around you. And uh, I mean, look, it, it it's it it is a difficult thing. Um, and it's different in this case because, you know, in the past, most of the war reporting I did, at least in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had the U.S. military. And you know, obviously there was a lot of embedded journalism. So you're with the best military in the world and a sense of, you know, certain security protection by, by being with them, even if, you know, you're, you're in the midst of, of hairy situations. You know, with something like this, um, it's it's harder because you know obviously you can't trust the the Russians to to show any restraints uh, at this point. Um, you can't trust that they're going to stick to hitting you know military targets. I mean, we've seen footage of residential areas and apartment buildings being shelled. Um, you know, there are civilians in great peril and there are civilians being killed and, and injured in, in Ukraine. And so, you know, to me, in reporting on something like this, I think it's, it is absolutely critical to keep as much focus on the, the human toll and, and impact of this. And, and I think, you know, the, the coverage has certainly shown a lot of that. I mean, you know, showing people sheltering in, in you know, subway stations underground, uh, you know, showing the, the the women and children fleeing to to Poland, um, and capturing that that human cost of this, and and it, it's critical, in particular, to get that story to the Russian people, uh, and and that so that they see that what their leader is doing is having a devastating human effect on people that he has been saying are 
you know, are, are the, the brothers and sisters of Russia for that matter. Um, so to, you know, it's, it's critical to be on the ground, um, you know, showing it as, as closely as possible. Um, and, you know, I, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of my friends are, are there right now doing this. So, you know, certainly I'm, I'm watching both with, you know, sort of the news interest, but the personal interest of, of, you know, making sure that, that they're safe. Um, but it's, it's critical for them to be out there and, and show this and capture all the, the nuances of it, you know, showing the, the, just the citizens that are, are fighting back, that are standing up. Um, but this, you know, this, this kind of conflict is, uh, it is different than some other, it's, it's a bit more like, like Libya was in 2011, where it, you know, it, was, it was much more chaotic. Um, the, the sort of rules on the ground were different than you know, the, the US operations and, and other places. Uh, so there's no question, it, it, it's, it's dangerous and you can't necessarily count on any location being, you know, off limits to, to shelling or, uh, you know, activity by, by Russian forces. You know, it, it, it brings to mind the, the brief experience I had as a member of Congress uh, going into um, flying into Kuwait, um, then being uh, airdropped into, um, uh, into Iraq uh, with the aircraft, uh, doing spiral circles to avoid um, anti-aircraft fire on the way into the airport, um, convoy of Humvees into Fallujah. This is 2007, um, surrounded by American uh, troops uh, and security contractors everywhere we went, wearing helmets and bulletproof vests um, every moment, uh, even while asleep. Um, uh, it was an experience that I'll, I'll never forget. And as brief as it was, gave me a, a really small window into uh, what it's like to be in a war zone, something that you had a lot of experience with. I want to I want to pull out uh, uh, to a, a macro question um, that's a really important one. Um, Putin has put his nuclear forces on alert in a very public way, something very uh, unusual uh, in in our experience. Um, the the prospect and threat of the use of nuclear weapons is unthinkable. It, it has been off the table unthinkable. It has been the subject of, of intense negotiations and treaties. Um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's beyond the pale. It's a startling and dangerous move. What's going on at our Department of Defense in response from your experience inside the Department of Defense? Um, what, what, what's happening? Um, because Obviously, nobody in the U.S. has said anything, and I don't expect anybody to say anything publicly uh, beyond statements uh, that, you know, we are prepared to respond as necessary. But but what's going on? Well, I, I think what, what's going on is is in line with something I, you know, I mentioned earlier about the fact that, you know, Russia is a, a nuclear power, and therefore that creates space for it to operate below that threshold and threaten 
that, hey, if you, know, if you guys push back, remember, I've, I've got nukes. And so I, I think part of the discussion is, is really trying to assess whether he, he's really serious or, or whether this is just you know, a sort of scare tactic and a reminder to say, hey, look, um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here on a pile of nuclear weapons, so I'm doing what I'm doing. If you get my way, um, you know, I, I can't be responsible because, because, because I warned you and, and, you know, there is debate right now. And, and one of the things that started to emerge in the last couple of days is this sort of discussion about is, is Putin unhinged? Um, you know, certainly some of the language has, has been even odd by, by his standards, uh, you know, talking about the, you know, the, the Ukrainians being, you know, drug addicted Nazis and, and all this stuff. So, so there's debate as to whether he he is kind of off or whether this is in, intentional. Um, that again, he's 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 playing the crazy card uh, to basically signal that hey, you know, all all bets are off. You know, you don't know what I'm going to do, so don't oppose. Just let me have Ukraine. And so, I, I think you know, part of the the discussion is really trying to figure out. You know the 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 game theory here of of okay how you know how far is he going to go and how serious is this um, and then you know this does get back to sort of Cuban Missile Crisis kind of uh, you know analysis here of okay does the United States then make a counter move and you know go to DEFCON three and increase its nuclear readiness um, is that the right countermeasure or does that then play into Putin's, you know, fears and, and ratchet things up, or do you ignore it and just say, okay, look, um, it's, it's bluster. It's, it's sort of understandable bluster in this, in this circumstance, but, you know, he's not going to go that far. And, and I think, you know, look, it's strategic. Haven't haven't we thought, haven't we uh, thought that, um, and improperly that a lot of what Putin had said and was doing was bluster before. Right. And, and, and so that, that's the question. I mean, look, you know, strategic ambiguity is, you know, could be a good thing. Um, you, you know, you want the opponent to be unsure in, in certain areas about what capabilities you have, your willingness to, to use those things. Um, and so that's, again, the question is, is Putin, is this just, you know, posturing and gamesmanship um, or, or is he really contemplating this and, and saying, no, look, you know, if, if you oppose, if you arm the Ukrainians, if troops come in, um, I'm, I'm going to play this card. Um, but either way, I mean, yes, it, it is something that, that has to give you pause. And I think, you know, he, he knows this and knows that he's got that threat and that gives him leeway, as, as we've been saying throughout this conversation, it has allowed him to continually escalate these incursions to a level where he feels, well, look, I haven't paid a price for these smaller things and they don't want to confront a nuclear power, so I can get away with this. So there are obviously several bad scenario outcomes here, including the one you just outlined. And there seems to be a sense that the most likely scenario, what Putin is aiming for is to essentially decapitate the government and put in a puppet government in its stead. And that may still be the outcome here. Do you see 
any potential, I'm going to air quote this, good scenarios, any, any outcomes here where there's a limited further loss of life and the current government of Ukraine remains intact and we're able to strike some kind of even an uneasy peace? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm a, you know, admit I'm a negotiations geek. Um, you know, I, I did study, you know, you look at past negotiations to, to resolve conflicts. And so I've, I've constantly been looking at this one, trying to figure out, is there a, an overlap, right? You know, the Venn diagram of, of what he wants and what the West wants. Is there an overlap that the sides can, can agree and each can walk away with, with something acceptable that stops short of, of worst case scenarios? And, and honestly, I'm really not sure. Uh, it's been hard to see as Putin has made his demands, as he's increased, uh, you know, the, the invasion, that there is something that he can walk away with, that, that, that Ukraine and the West can concede that that's acceptable, that gives him a win that he can sell to his people, that isn't too much of a concession for, for the West. And as I say, right now, that's, I'm searching for, for finding that, that nugget, and I'm right now not seeing it. Um, and that's, that's what's particularly unnerving about this scenario is that I, I don't know what the West and Ukraine can give him that he can walk away with at this point and, and pull the troops out. John Carberry is a former lead Kabul correspondent for NPR, Department of Defense, Inspector General, an award-winning foreign correspondent, and obviously an expert on all things related to war and peace and foreign policy. And we really appreciate you walking through this incredibly dynamic unfolding situation and very perilous and unfortunate situation unfolding in Ukraine. For Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time on Beyond Politics and Capital Close-Up.